I don't know about you all, but I get a lot of, uh, I get a lot of mail. And uh, I've, I've tried very hard to purge as much as I can. I send things back. I mark, uh, un, you know, we don't live here anymore. Please don't contact us. We, we live in a commune in uh, Montana. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, uh, you know, mail is a problem. But then you've got email. And you know what that's like. And I've got my filters. I have used all these things to keep junk out of my inbox because I don't have time. But here's one that uh, you all know what that is, all right? You see it? This is a jury summons. Um, and uh, <laughs> actually, it's a jury summons for me. And that's what I think of the county of El Paso. Uh, <laughs> no, they already, they already dismissed me. I didn't do anything illegal. I'm not going to get arrested, uh, at least not for that. Um, but I, you know how important it is to get mail. And you know what mail is all about. And when you get a jury summons or you get an envelope where somebody has actually taken the time to write with a pen or ink... Uh, you know, you generally tend to look at those a little closer. And these letters in the book of Revelation, we're going to look at them over three weeks. I'm going to do something a little different than you typically see in churches where uh, they, t- they tend to go through the way it's always done is you go through each letter and you read the letter and you tell folks what the letter's about. I'm going to do it a little differently because... I think it's important that you not necessarily try to dissect every detail, but rather that you listen. And so we're going to read, we're going to read the first triad. These uh, seven letters are divided into what scholars have recognized as two triads of three letters and three letters. And in the center of each triad of three, there's a commendation letter to a church that's actually doing things right. And then in the middle is this interesting letter to Thyatira. We'll look at that one separately only because we have to divide it somehow. And I figured, well, we'll just use Thyatira as sort of a hinge. And so as we've been doing, I don't want you, the the text is printed in your bulletin. You may have your Bible. What I'm going to ask you to do through this series is not to read alone. Uh, Try to resist. Don't read alone. Just listen. Listen and see, because it was meant to be heard and seen. And what we often do is we want to get down in the weeds and dissect every little part, and that's okay, we're going to do some of that. But uh, just listen. Now hear God's Word, starting with chapter 2, the first letter, and I'll be reading the first three letters. Here, see if you can hear it, if you can see it, if you can hear the cadence of what He's doing. It's fascinating. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those that call themselves apostles and are not. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But 
I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, but only for ten days. Be faithful to death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the church, to the angel at the church of Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not... I will come soon. And I will wage war with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows but he himself. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. Dennis Johnson in his commentary, and I have some of the commentaries up here in case you want to look at them. Don't take them home with you. I need them. Uh, But you're welcome to look at them and peruse them. I have a lot more that I've used, but these are some of the better ones. Um, 
These letters from the king we're going to look at over the next uh, few weeks. And Dr. Johnson in his uh, commentary says this. Listen closely because this is important to understand these letters. The seven churches in Asia Minor, these seven churches that were in sort of a circle but really an oval. In fact, if you look at it, it looks more like a, like a shepherd's crook, you know, going the, this way or that way if you're out there. Um, the seven churches of Asia Minor represent the totality of Christ's churches scattered across the world over time. And their problems, listen, are symptomatic of those confronting churches in all times at all places. You see, these letters that John wrote, and, and scholars have debated, did he send one letter to each church? No. What he did was he wrote all seven letters and they compiled the letters, all seven, in a book or in a letter a bigger letter, and they sent the whole thing to all seven churches. And if you listen, you can tell that he meant for those letters to be read in every church. And that the letters were universal in their nature because he uses the, the formula, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear, and some other stuff that we'll talk about in a moment, to indicate that he's talking about these letters being read and understood by all churches. And furthermore, he's talking about churches at all times throughout all history. In fact, throughout all of the last days, which you remember I told you, the last days represent all those days between Jesus' first and second coming. So we are living in the last days. We don't know how long it's going to last. If somebody says, well, it's going to last this long, and they give you a date, they are lying. They are a false teacher. Do not listen. Do not send money. Send your money here, not there. <laughs> no, 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 no. Nobody knows the day or the hour. We don't know how long the last days are going to last. Furthermore, we're living in the tribulation. It's not going to be some little compressed seven-year period. There's no way to get that from your Bible. Now, good scholars have done that, but I think they're wrong. And we'll look at that later when we get to that part. But what the tribulation, what John has been very completely precise about, the tribulation is right now, we're sharing in that tribulation. Now it's worse in other places than it is here. In the United States, we're relatively safe. But in other parts of the world, it's dangerous to be a Christian. In other parts of the world, you can't just be a Christian. You all know that. So, what do you see? What did you see? I hope you saw some things. Let me give you a few of them very quickly. Here's what you should see when you read this. Not everything you should see, but some, what I think are, are really important things. So I'm only going to highlight the things that I believe that you really should see. First of all, you should have seen, and I hope you caught it, the organization of his letters. I don't know, did you see it? Could you catch it? First, there was a recipient to the angel of the church in whatever right. So there's a recipient in mind. There's also a sender. These are the words of him in the book of Ephesians. He says, here's the words of him who holds the seven stars. Okay? Who walks 
among the seven lampstands. So there's a recipient, there's a sender, there's an, an intense sense of intimacy. Did you catch it? The repetition of the word, I know, I know, I know. He says it in every letter, he repeats it in some letters. What does he know? Does he simply know about your life? Does he simply know about your problems? You know the answer to that is no, right? He knows. How does he know? Because he's in the middle, the midst of his churches. He's here with us today. He's here when you leave with you. He goes with you. He doesn't stay in the empty room here. He goes out with us. He walks among, it says in 2.1, among his lampstands. There's action. Look what he says. He tells these churches. He tells them different things. Repent. Remember. Return, he tells the church of Ephesus. He tells the church at Smyrna, do not fear. Hold fast. Don't be afraid. Remain faithful. Persevere. And then there's a reaction. There's an action he's requiring. He's saying, do this. But he's also saying, there's an action, a reaction to what you do. Now some of us, we get so caught up in what we call the sovereignty of God, or as Herman mentioned this morning, the transcendence of God, that all we think, well, He knows everything that's going to happen, so, and He's already predestined everything that's going to happen, so why should I even bother praying? Why should I do this? Why should I do that? Those are, those are understandable questions, but they are very, very immature. They don't really get who God is and who we are. He has given you a choice. And you can act on those choices. And God has said, do this and I'll do this. In good faith. Does He know what's going to happen? Yes. Does he, has He preordained and all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know all that. I know that better than you can imagine. I mean, I, made a, I, made, I went to school. I paid enormous amounts of money to learn all that. And I'm happy to talk to you about it in the Q&A, but we are free and we can do what He tells us to do. And He says, if you don't, tells Ephesus, I'll remove your lampstand. Now, he, now look, He's not talking to the world out there. He's not talking to people that don't believe. He's talking to Christians. He's saying, you either do this or you're going to lose your light. And we'll look at it in, in a moment. He tells the Smyrna church, I'll give you a crown of life. Stay faithful. Don't give up. I'm with you. And then he warns Pergamum. He says, you know, if you don't cut this out, I'm going to come with the sword of my mouth and I'm going to make war. We think Jesus is all fuzzy and sweet, you know, and all that. But the book of Revelation, you're going to see, he is a lion and a lamb. Not just the lamb. And especially in the book of Revelation, he has a sword coming out of his mouth. He's got eyes blazing with fire. This is a God who is passionate about his church. He loves his church. He loves you. 
And then there's a summons. I hope you saw it. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then finally, he who over, to him who overcomes, he makes these amazing promises. And we'll look at those as well. So there's the organization. And guess how many parts of those letters, and they're all identical. Guess. Just throw a number out, somebody. Just guess. Anybody. What? Seven, of course. I mean, how hard is that? Right? Look at it. Every letter is organized exactly this way. Look, John didn't just sit down and write a letter with stream of consciousness. He thought deeply about what he was writing. And he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he was also thinking about what he was writing and saying, I want them to see who is sending the letter, who's receiving the letter, what I have to say, what they need to do commanding us to listen, not just let it bounce off of our eardrums, but actually take it in and obey what He says. And then He makes these enormous promises. And if you look at the seven parts of the letters and you look at what He says, they are all reflections of what He said in chapter 1. It is quite remarkable. I wish we had time to look at it all. So very quickly, here we go. What do you see? First of all, the words from our king. You know, if you get a letter from the IRS, you get a jury summons, you get a personal letter from somebody, you pay attention. You make a discrimination about what you're going to throw into the trash. I never would have torn up the jury summons if it was active. I mean, what kind of crazy person am I, right? Well, don't answer that. But I mean, think about it. The sheriff comes to your house and you didn't answer your jury summons and you've got to go to a judge and it's a big hassle. Why do I know that? Because I have been there sitting in the waiting room with everybody else. All you bad people that didn't answer the jury summons didn't show up. You've got to go see the judge and tell him why and make up lies, which I did. I lied my head off why I couldn't make the jury <laughs> We handle these things differently. And what we see, these are words from the king. We've got to pay attention to what the king's saying. This is not just suggest, we'll kind of do this if you feel like it. No, he's serious here. I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to make war. I mean, he is threatening us. He's telling us, get with the program. No more Mr. Nice Guy. <laughs> Although Jesus is wonderful and amazingly nice and gracious. But He loves us. It's like a parent telling his children, don't do that, that's going to hurt. That's going to burn. That's going to have consequences. I know, I have adult children. And we went through all that. Some of you are going through that. You know what it is to love your children and want to do everything you can to keep them. You make threats, you make promises, you do everything. He's doing that because He loves us. He walks among us. That brings us to the other thing you should have seen. Intense intimacy. Shocking almost. I know. I don't simply know about you. I know. Why? How does He know? How how, why is Christianity so utterly unique? Why is there not another religion on the face of this planet, not ever has been, not ever will be? What utterly makes Christianity stand out beyond anything you can imagine? It is one word. Incarnation. The trajectory of the Gospel 
that we read in our Bible. Dr. Michael Williams said, I say it every Christmas, and we're getting ready to roll. There's a Christmas tree in our, in our foyer. We're beating Walmart. We're beating Target. We're beating everybody to the punch. I mean, we got a Christmas tree, and it was here the beginning of September. You know, amazing. And I love Christmas. My favorite, one of my favorites. I love all kind of holidays, but I love Christmas. Christmas is about the mystery and the majesty of the Incarnation. How does He know? How can He say, I know. We can say it because I've been there. I know. I don't just know about it. I know. I became human to know. I know the works. I know the toil. Think of Jesus every time you hear work, toil, patient endurance. Think of Jesus Christ. He knows. I know you're bearing up for my name's sake. Who stood for God and His name at the cost of His life, His reputation, everything, every breath, to the final, to the end? Who did that? I know Don't grow weary. I know you've grown weary. I know how hard it is. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. This is a man who lived his whole life in poverty. Poverty none of us probably ever experienced. And I know where Satan's throne dwells. No one knows Satan like Jesus. Don't even pretend you think the devil's giving you a hard time. Jesus knows. Jesus spent 40 days with Him in the wilderness and then He spent His entire life, not only those 40 days, every minute of Jesus' waking life, He was confronted by Satan. I know. Jesus Christ, folks, and I've told you this before, it's so important that you remember this and why... I take, personally, why I take the eschatological positions that I take in this church and have tried to encourage you all to take them as well. And that is because I do not believe that Jesus is a king in absentia. I don't think He just said, okay, uh, I'm going to create a parenthesis here. Now you guys, the church is on its own. And someday I'll come back and and someday I'll establish uh, Israel again. And then, you know, we'll start all over again. And in the meantime, you church people, you kind of hang on. That is not what He did. He rules now. He rules forever. He is continuing to rule. He inaugurated His kingdom. I told you you need to know this. You need to write it in the front of your Bibles. I-C-C. Inauguration at His first coming, His birth. Continuation. That's the entire church age from first to second coming. And consummation. That's the day He comes back. And make no mistake, He is coming back. And He is coming back physically. Every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. We already read that last week. There will be a day when, in fact, we'll read that in a couple more chapters, when the heavens are going to roll up like a scroll and everybody is going to 
They're not going to welcome him there. Oh, hey, he's here. We all repent. We're all so glad Jesus came. They're going to shake their fists and curse him. We think, oh, if he would just show up and, and hey, if he would just show up, if he would just show up and make himself known and do some miracles that we really could see and let us actually get a hold of him and touch him, then we would believe. Right? Don't people say that? Didn't that happen? And Dr. John Gerstner, who was the mentor to Dr. R.C. Sproul, said that when he did, when he actually did come, made himself available so that you could get your hands on him, so you could see his miracles, so you could do, so that you could actually talk to him face to face. You know what we decided to do? Kill him. Not fall down and worship him. Shake our fist and say, "Come down from the come down." You saved others. You're so come down. The mocking, the dripping mockery of mankind. And such was I, yes? Me. I'm talking about me personally. And maybe you. But no more. No more. So there's this, not a king in absentia. I know, I know, I know. I know you. Secondly, why are you saying it? Very quickly, listen to this. He loves this church. Now, the book of Revelation is a frightening book. I'm going to kid you. In a few weeks, you're going to see dragons with seven heads and ten horns. And you're going to see all these creatures. And you're going to see all this crazy stuff. You're going to see saints that have been beheaded underneath the altar of God like this. Pretend this was an altar. Uh, And underneath the altar, there's these beheaded saints and they're crying out. How are they doing that? They don't have heads. I don't know. I don't understand. And they're crying out, when are you going to bring vengeance? You know, there's um, these amazing images and amazing things. And you've got to see them. He loves His church. But He understands that we are a church in tribulation. We are going through a tribulation and He urges us not to give up. He, you know, every day, I don't know about you folks, there is not a day in my life, ask my wife, there is not a day in my life that I don't want to quit. Not just quit being a pastor. Quit everything. And go hide somewhere. So life can be hard, Yes. You know, I mean, really, I mean, life is hard and He's urging us. Do not give up. There is something else besides this here and now. There is something else besides the trouble of this life. We can get so caught up in it that it just takes away every sense of our understanding. So very quickly, and I, I wish I had more time, but I, I don't maybe... We can catch up in the, in the Q&A. We'll, we'll do this. First thing he does is he issues a warning to the church of Ephesus. And what Dr. Dennis Johnson says, that this letter to Ephesus is that they have something called discernment, but no love. I love what the 
New Living Translation, how they translate it. I think they got at it a little better than the ESV and certainly better than some of the other uh, translations. Uh, and it goes like this. We all know this phrase. It's very familiar to us. I have this against you. You've left your first love. And immediately our mind runs, well, I don't love Jesus the same way. But he's not talking necessarily about himself. The NLT says this, you don't love me or each other as you did at first. You see, love had grown cold. And John, remember in in 1 John, in his little letters that he wrote, not saying nothing about the Gospels that he wrote, John said, you can't say you love people when, or you can't say you love God when you don't really love people. Because that's a lie. How you love people, how you express your love horizontally is nothing more than an expression of your love for God vertically. They are integrally, you know what I mean. They're integrally connected. Now that doesn't mean that you won't struggle, struggle loving people out here. I mean, if you don't, we all need to bow down and kiss your feet. Because it is hard to love people, yeah? And sometimes we say, oh, I love God, I love God, but I can't stand them. Which is good. You should be honest and say those things and then repent, like he said. But there is such a thing as discernment without love. In other words, where we love the truth, but we don't love, we want to be doctrinally precise, but we do not want to be able to express it. Uh, with love. You know, Dr. Michael Horton, do any of you know who Michael Horton is, Dr. Horton? Great theologian at Westminster uh, West. Michael Horton uh, 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 coined this phrase, I don't know, some of you may have heard it, I'm sure Herman's heard it, cage stage Calvinist. You heard it? Anybody heard it? Cage stage Calvinist. These are people that, and I, I joke about it, I joke about it, I was a cage stage guy. We asked John Calvin into our heart. You know what I'm talking about? I know who you are. I've already talked to you, and I know exactly who you are, so don't try to lie to me. Cage stage Calvinists are people who have, have discovered the doctrine of election and predestination. They think that that's all those four big, huge volumes of John Calvin's Institutes are about, and which actually they're in, they're in book three at the end, and a little, little, bit, little bit like this. But that's what they think everything is about. So Dr. Sproul, R.C., said this. I love this about cage stage Calvinists. This is, these are people that are all about doctrine and they're all about truth and they're going to be true to them and I'm standing for the truth and, I'm, and they're the most unloving monsters you will ever meet. Because they haven't invited Jesus into their heart. They invited John Calvin. God help them. I know because I was one of them. I'm a recovering uh, and Jeff, <laughs> I, know. I went through the 12 steps to get rid of John Calvin. <laughs> I love John Calvin. You all know that. Here's what R.C. said. These stage, cage stage Calvinists are newly minted reformed believers who are so aggressive, so impatient. They should be locked in a cage for a while. <laughs> so that they can cool down and mature in the faith. Now that comes from the Calvinist with the big T, uh, R.C. Sproul. And you know what I'm talking about. This, 
if, if you were a smoker and you quit, if you were a drinker and you quit, if you did drugs, if you got, you know, if you, if you used to work out at Scott's gym, but then all of a sudden you had an epiphany that CrossFit is the thing. You become a stage cage CrossFit person until you get hurt or something else happens. You know, or, or you know, sugar. Have you heard that one? Sugar's bad for you? Eat honey. <laughs> now, we got some doctors and scientists in our congregation like Sarah and David and some of them. And they'll tell you that glucose is glucose, right? You, know, you can eat it in any form you want, but when it hits your little mouth, it's just sugar. But we become so excited about it and we have no tolerance for anybody else. Oh my God, you're still eating white flour? Go to Whole Foods. I mean, they have, you, you can look for white flour. They have sentries posted at both ends of the bread aisle just to get you and get you out of the store before you even ask for white flour. Because they don't even want to mention how evil is white flour. Never mind 70% of our population would crawl across dirt to get a loaf of white flour. Never mind. So intolerant are we. Tim Keller said, truth without love, listen, truth without love really isn't truth. And love without truth really isn't love. They must go together. And Jesus demands that they go together. He tells Ephesus, you don't, you're going to lose your light. That lampstand is going to go. Nobody is going to listen. You know why people don't listen to Christians? Because they're dang mean. Not all of them. Not people. No one here at Christ the King is mean. We're the nicest people in the world. But there are some mean Christians out there. God help us. He commends Smyrna. He tells them, look, I know you're living in the already not lit, and it's not easy. But then he just jumps in. There's this parenthetical thing he does. I love it. When you're reading it, you just go, wow. You know, it's almost like John couldn't stand going to the rest of the letter. He says, I know you're poor, but he's got to say this very quickly before he goes on. You're rich. You're rich. Don't forget how rich you are. Don't forget how rich you are. Don't be caught off guard. Don't let the unexpected things of life knock you off track. Stay firm. Remember the riches. Remember. John Stott said we should not be surprised. I love this. John Stott said we should not be surprised if anti-Christian hostility increases. We should be if it doesn't. Yeah? Did you hear that? Okay, I won't say anything else about it. I hope you know what I'm talking about. Don't ever, ever think that because things are going good for the church, it's so smooth, we have all this power right now, that that's a good thing for us. It has never been a good thing for us. It has always betrayed us. And we're supposed to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves and be watchful. 
for the lies that everybody out there perpetrates on the, on the church because the church is highly susceptible to a thing called seduction. And you'll see that. Then he warns Pergamum. He says, I know that Satan is there. I know that you're living in Satan's, among Satan's throne. I know where he dwells. And I know that they're trying to seduce you. That's, what he's, that's the whole thing about Balaam and Balak. I'll try to talk about that maybe in the Q&A. There's two ways that the church in Revelation is warned. Listen carefully because if you don't get this, folks, Revelation, frankly, it starts to not make a lot of sense. One is violence. Christianity, the, the writer John, through the inspiration of Holy Spirit, is saying you are going to be violently opposed. And people are going to actually kill you, not just say, oh, we don't like you, we don't want to invite you for coffee anymore because you're a Christian. That is not what he's talking about. He's talking about violent opposition where they actually do kill you. The other one, and he talks about this one just as much, if not more. Listen, if you don't get this, it won't make any sense. Seduction. Satan, if he can't get you violently, which he can't get us in the United States violently, you know that, right? Nobody's going to lose their head in the U.S. ever. At least not for probably three or four, maybe ten generations. I know some of you don't believe that. You think that, oh my God, if the Democrats, they'll get us. They are not the ones to worry about, believe me. Neither one of the current political parties are going to do anything to you except seduce you. Did you hear me? Can somebody give me a weak amen? amen? They want to seduce. That doesn't mean we shouldn't vote for them. Doesn't mean we shouldn't get out there and be political active. But listen, seduction is real. Jesus just told you and He wants you to pay attention. Wake up. Seduction. Balaam, Balak. So who do you see? Let me close with this. Jesus exhausts his vocabulary in describing who is sending these letters and who is walking among his people in all of this horror of the tribulation. Who is there among? And he commands, he says, look, who, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear. He's saying, listen, this will save you. This will keep you from falling. And then he makes promises. Listen, these are just the first three promises he makes, and I'll close, but listen, what do you see when he makes these promises? This rocks me. I don't know if it'll rock you, maybe not, but it rocks me to my, my soul, folks. It takes me to my soul down to the bottom. Here's his promise. To the one who conquers, he will eat of the tree of life. In the paradise of God. He will not be hurt by the second death. This is the ultimate judgment that comes at the end of the book of Revelation. And I will give him hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written that nobody knows but he himself. How in the world does he have the audacity to make those promises? How does Jesus Christ 
stand up in front of all time and eternity and say, I'm going to get you back into the tree of life that has been barred, that God has said no, and set an angel with a sword over it to say no to every human being that's ever lived. God said no. How? Is He going to protect you and me from the second death, from ultimate judgment? How are you going to get out of someday facing God? If He exists, we're going to stand before Him and we're going to give account for every word and every deed that we have ever committed. What are you going to do? And where in the world... Are we going to get a new identity, hidden manna, and a new name that nobody knows? I I just read this week, and I encourage you to read this this week. Look up George Herbert's poem, The Sacrifice. George Herbert, Roman Catholic priest, wrote this poem several hundred years ago, 63 stanzas, over a hundred verses, all Jesus speaking. And every one of them, he's recalling one little part of his life. It is heart-wrenching. It's hard to read. I'm going to read you one stanza. Listen. Oh, all ye who pass by, behold and see. Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. The tree of life for all. For all, but not for me was ever grief like mine. Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree of life, the tree of life for all, but not for me. I don't know why you're here today, folks. There's probably a hundred reasons why you're here in church today. But if you're here for any other reason any other reason than for that man who climbed the tree so that you could go back to the garden of God and have eternal life. You'll never make it. He died so that you would escape judgment. He lost his place his food, his drink, his place, so that we would have hidden manna. His name was dragged through the mud. It still is today. So that you could have a new name. And he climbed that tree so we never would have to. And so that the angel and the garden that was barring the tree of access with the the tree of life with his sword, that sword is put into the heart of your Savior. So we have access. Will you trust Him? That's what He's saying. That's what you should see. 
the tree of life for all. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your kindness and goodness. And we ask that your everlasting love would surround us, even in our fears and doubts like these churches, Father. We all go through these things, sometimes over and over again. But you are there among us, and you have promised us all things, and you feed us with the hidden manna of which we are about to simply taste just a crumb of that hidden manna, the bread of life that came down from heaven. Help us, save us, and have mercy on us, O God, according to your grace. Amen.